This is the word of God. And so we continue to learn by the grace of God so much of Him and so much of ourselves and so much of what it means to believe in Jesus as God draws back the curtain. And so we've been saying since we began the virtual camp on Friday that the main message here is a crisis of faith. Why this disruption? We ask that present question. Because of this COVID-19, because of this pandemic, life has been turned, overturned. So we used to work from office, but now we work from home. We used to have very rigid hours, 9 to 5 or 9 to 7. Now we have flexible hours or staggered hours of working. We used to um, go out there and it used to be crowded. And now we, love, we, we live and study and work mainly in isolation. Whenever we bump into people out there, it was somebody to say hello to. Now, whenever we bump into people out there, this, po- this person could possibly infect me and I could possibly infect that person. Previously, we had unhindered dressing, right? When we went out to work and play, now it's uniform dressing, everybody has a mask. Previously, a boom industry, maybe for the women, was lipstick. Now with a mask, no more lipstick industry is the eyebrow industry. Things have changed. Things have become totally disrupted. And when it's disrupted, on a, and we feel this at a very serious level, we do ask, where is God? Is there a God? And if there is a God, is He loving? Is He doing anything about this? Does He know what we're going through? And the answer of Scripture, and the answer of the Bible, the answer of God to us through His Word and in His Son, finally, is yes. 2,000 years ago, when this book called Revelation was written, their crisis of faith was this. Why has Jesus left us behind? Okay, let me just test this where it's coming up. Okay. Why has Jesus left us behind to suffer? And increasingly, the Christians were suffering. They think that this book and what it was written about was most likely the tail end of the first century about in the 90s, it was a crumbling empire, it was an egotistical uh, emperor, and beginning from Emperor Nero in the 60s, just 30 years after Jesus died and rose, and people believed in Jesus, Nero started to scapegoat Christians. And this scapegoating of Christians as an, an illegal group, not like the Jews and Judaism, which was treated as a legal religion, started to escalate more and more right around the empire. And so, through all these years of being a Christian, being a pastor, sometimes we meet people, uh, Christians from overseas, we go to those places for mission, and they say life, they ask us about life in Singapore and ask them about life in their countries. And in some of these countries in which Christians are persecuted, the difference is quite stark. And one of them said to me, you know, when you send off your children to work, in Singapore, you always expect to see them at the end of the day. When we send our children off to work, when we say goodbye to our husbands, we may not see them because all of a sudden there could be a sporadic attack in the village, in the school. We never know. You, that takes you right back to New Testament Christianity, increasingly in the Roman Empire. So why has Jesus left us here? Abandoned us, forsaken us, forgotten us, only for us to suffer. He is the absent Lord, if He is Lord at all. And God and Jesus gives this vision to John 
and John is to give it to the church then and us until Jesus returns. We are to hold fast to this vision. And the vision is far from being absent. Though the church is encircled with hostility, it's, it's being choked with hostility, it's suffocating from, from enmity all around, politically, religiously, yet Jesus is present no longer as the suffering Christ, but as the glorious Christ. And that's the message. So a simple way to understand the structure of Revelation is this. It's like a hamburger. It begins with a prologue. And the prologue declares that Jesus is a few great titles, a few great things, his finished work on the cross. He's the faithful witness, faithful to God and God's mission to the end of his life. Death on the cross. But death on the cross wasn't his last word. God raised him from the dead and he's seated at God's right hand. So he's the firstborn from among the dead. He starts a whole human race that though we die physically, will be raised to eternal life when Jesus returns because death is the penalty for our rebellion against God. And Jesus is now ruler of the kings of this earth. He is the sovereign. And it also tells us in Revelation chapter 1 that what do we know about Jesus? He loves us and He frees us from our sin by His blood on the cross. And then He has made us to be His kingdom, His subjects of His kingdom, no longer subjects of this world, of Babylon under Satan, and we are now to be a, a, a priesthood, sharing God's holiness to the sinfulness and the fallenness of this world. And so far from being absent, Jesus is the risen Lord. He's the Lord of history. And then in chapter 22, the epilogue, it will end. So when you eat a hamburger, right? Eat a burger. There's bread on top, bread at the bottom, Right? The bun on top, the bun on the bottom, and in between is the meat. And the meat are, in the first three chapters, especially chapters 2 and 3, is Jesus telling His church, seven letters to the seven churches all around Asia Minor, that I'm here with you. I know of your faithfulness, I know of your sinfulness, but I'm here with you. I'm here with you to purify you from the world, right? From, to purify. And then I'm going to send you onto the world as I send judgment after judgment after judgment in human history to awaken the world. But as I send judgment after judgment, the things that shall take place, Jesus is going to protect us. But before He protects us and sends us out as His light, as His witness, He has to speak to His church and purify us. That was the main message of Revelation 2 and 3 that we've been listening to. So, Jesus speaks to his church. In all the seven letters, there's a common pattern. There is firstly praise or commendation from Jesus, right? To encourage that this is what we are doing well as his people, doing well as his church, doing well in our Christian lives personally. And then he will move to rebuke. This is what you are compromising with the world. This is what you are falling. Pray to Satan who dominates you by imitating me. And then he says, repent. There is time to repent. I know you have fallen. I know you are compromising with idolatry and immoralities. But I give you a chance to repent. And you now have to choose. If you choose to believe in me by keeping this word and keeping to this vision that Jesus is Lord of history, 
you will be overcomers. And you will share with me the tree of life, the crown of life, everything I promised you in the new heaven and the new earth. But if you do not listen and you do not choose me, but when you choose to be hoodwinked by Satan, there will be eternity without me outside where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that language is found, that language of hell is found in Revelation 22. And so Jesus speaks to his church. And we've seen a few things. To the church in Ephesus, their wonderful strength is that they are very good in telling false teachers and false teaching. But their great weakness as they focus so much on pointing out true doctrine is that they are fault finders. They are paupers in love. They are champions in truth. And that is what we mustn't get used to. Always pointing people's faults never pointing people to Jesus. Whatever we do not know about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the triune God is a God of love. And because He's a God of love, we are to be a people of love. It's very serious to slowly but surely lose love for God and lose love for God's people. And God says to us, there's no such thing as the loveless believer. There's no such thing as the loveless follower of Jesus because Jesus, on, on his tombstone, he says he loves. He's the epitome of love. And Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And then to the church in Smyrna, there is no condemnation. There is no correction. And the lesson is very clear. Jesus has only praised for the poor churches and the suffering churches, not because he loves poverty over prosperity, but in their spiritual poverty, in their physical poverty, they, are, they re totally rely on God. And so no correction of them, just persevere and do not fear that though we die in the flesh, we will not face the second death, which is eternity without God. The lessons for Pergamon, Pergamon had the first martyr of that time. His name was Antipas. But for the rest of the church, they were suffering from increasing seduction. The increasing seduction were two eyes, idolatry and immorality. And Jesus says to the church in Pergamon and in Tartira, Repent. You have become, you now have a very low view of sex because the world that you live in thinks nothing about the one night stands, thinks nothing about it's okay to believe in God and still have alternate sexualities. No, I say to you, you cannot compromise. And we didn't cover this in detail when he spoke to Tara In all likelihood, they had to belong to what we call a modern-day world in Singapore, associations or clans. Unless you belong to these business associations or clans, you do not get your business, you do not prosper. In Tartira, you had to belong to these clans. And when you go to their feasts, it was usually in the temple. And when you go to the temple, there will usually be temple prostitutes. There will be drunkenness, and from that drunkenness will come immorality. And there goes the compromise. It's a compromise that the prophet Balaam brought in the Old Testament. It's a compromise that Jezebel brought to God's people in the Old Testament. But the new version of this was Nicolaitans, that you could have this Special knowledge and whatever you do in your body doesn't matter, will not affect your eternal destiny. And Jesus says to his people, please do not buy into that lie. And we said that 
the Western Church has grown very weak about the doctrine of sin. And it has taken the African Church and the Asian Church to awaken the Western Church and says, no, you will not compromise and go down this route. For God says that sexual purity is part of our holiness, is part of our salvation. And so the pattern is set and now we come to Laodicea. Laodicea or Laodicea, I just took, um, led a group to Turkey and the exact spelling there is the, the Turkish spelling. And here we read Jesus speaking to his people. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness. That is Jesus. He is called the faithful witness in chapter 1. The beginning of God's creation, which means nothing began apart from Jesus as the first mover under God's authority and purposes. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are truly, you are wretched, you are pitiable, you are poor, you are blind, you are naked. And so, what is the warning here? This is a sign showing that we had entered Laodicea country, beautiful country. Laodicea is famous for its glossy black wool. Yes, you read that rightly because they had black sheep or sheep with black wool and this was prized material and it made Laodicea really, really prosperous. Laodicea was also famous for having naturally been endowed with a cure for ear ailments and eye ailments, a salve. And so it became a medical centre and your medical centre in the first century, a medical centre in any century, your medical centre like Singapore now, you are a boom centre because we all worry about our health before we die. It was famous for its wealth. So famous that even though it was under the Roman Empire, it had its own local rulers. And when it was struck with an earthquake in AD 60, and Rome said, I will give you a relief package, I've come. And Laodicea said, there's no need. In fact, when they said the Roman representative came to Laodicea, the Laodicean ruler did not give him an audience. And so when you pull it all together, from their geography, from their economy, they were, and spiritually, Obviously, who they were as a city, as a culture, affected who they were as, a, as Christians and churches. And so we asked a very important question. Should culture affect church or church impact culture? We know that under God's purposes, it is we who should be salt and light to our culture. But very obviously, for the Christians in Laodicea, it was the culture that was still controlling them and hence, they were no, not distinct. They didn't stand out from their culture. They didn't stand up for God. So if we don't stand out from our culture and we don't stand out for Jesus, what are we? Obviously not salt and light. Obviously spiritually poor in God's eyes. So when Jesus speaks 
to this physically, financially rich and prosperous and very independent city and culture and church, he commends nothing in them. This is totally frightening. And he condemns everything about them, which is the total opposite of Smyrna and Philadelphia, the two churches that were poor and suffering, and Jesus condemns nothing about them and praises everything about them and just says to them, carry on. Which leads us to ask a very important question. Which is a more dangerous position to be in? Poverty or prosperity? Prosperity has many dangers to it. It has many good things about it. But we as Christians in Singapore, we as Christians in America, we as Christians in Canada have more dangers than the Christians in, in, in Africa, in, in Cambodia, in Myanmar, in the poor countries that could be suffering but standing up for Christ. And we need to take note of that. And Jesus' correction for them is, you have drifted from me, come to me, eat with me, Sit with me. And now we're going to find out what that means. So the Laodicean disease or problem is not persecution like Smyrna, not seduction like Pergamon and Thyatira, not a preoccupation with Sardis. Remember, Jesus said to the Christians in Sardis, you have good works, but your works are dead because nothing you do is ever complete. You know why? Because you are so preoccupied with your reputation. And so the distinctive thing, the distinctive disease of the Christians and the church here in Laodicea was their spiritual pride and something above and beyond that too. Spiritual pride, how does that look? Jesus pronounces them neither hot nor cold. So the river that was closest to Laodicea and for all, for life to blossom, you always need a water source. The river was river us, and the water was muddy and the water was not drinkable. So they had to pipe in this water from eight kilometres away. They had to pipe it in. From the source, it was from a hot spring, from the Hierapolis. But by the time it arrived, eight kilometres by an aqueduct, by their piping system at that time, very clever, very ingenious, it was no longer hot or cold. So neither hot, so if you go to a hot spring, right, we, opened, we, we just renovated a place around a hot spring here in Singapore and it was so crowded that the authorities had to close it down and then stagger the number of people. Hot springs are popular all around the world. Whether you go to a hot spring in Japan, whether you go to a hot spring in, in New Zealand, there are plenty of hot springs there because we believe in its medicinal values, its health benefits. So Laodicea, didn't have that. Neither was it cold. And cold water in a summer's day is refreshing, more refreshing than cook from, from a machine. Very refreshing. So Laodicea was neither hot nor cold, neither good for medicine nor refreshing to the spirit. And Jesus says, I will spit you out. What kind of language is that? Dare I say to you, Turn to someone at your home as you listen to this. I will spit you out. You will not say that to your father, your mother, your son or your daughter sitting with you. We will not say that to each other and say, Jesus is so rude at this moment. Yes, not rude, but filled with 
rightful, righteous anger. Remember when he entered the temple, he overturned the tables because this is no longer the original purpose of God. God meant the temple for his worship and to turn it into a house of dens and robbers. Jesus is not being rude. Basically, he's saying to them in our common parlance or language today, you'll make me sick. Christ saying to his church, you'll make me sick. You couldn't get more serious than that. So condemns everything, praises nothing. Why? What's so wrong with these Christians in Laodicea? I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realising that you are wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked, you're spi- this is spiritual blindness. From their own human perspective, they are all those things, right? Rich, prospered, need nothing. But from God's perspective, poor, wretched, blind and naked, total opposite which leads us to ask very important questions in life. You and me could have one view of ourselves. And how we view ourselves is usually incomplete and inaccurate. We are self-determiners and self-interpreters. When we interpret our, our world and we interpret our life, our marriage and our family through our own lenses, we usually get it wrong. We usually come to premature conclusions and wrong conclusions. So as we now look at COVID-19, the pandemic, we are reaching premature conclusions. We are reaching the wrong conclusions. You know why? Because we haven't added in the most important angle, the most important perspective. What does God think about this? What is God's view about this? And so we need to reckon with You say, I say, it's all human, it's all horizontal, it's all subjective. But what does God say? And specifically, what does Jesus say to us about us? Because without Jesus' view of us, we will be truly blind. So, God is disrupting our old normalcy. And our old normalcy, when He spoke to the church in Sardis, was, You got so used to what? You got so used to living your life for reputation. And so you're more concerned with appearance than actuality. That's your problem. That's why nothing you do will ever be complete. Where you got, you're so concerned with what people think of you, not not concerned with what God thinks of you. And so be very careful. For us, when we become independent, autonomous because of wealth, We think we are the first mover in life. And that's why this letter starts off with that Christ is the first of creation. He's saying that if I didn't create you, you wouldn't be here. There's no such thing. We never arrive in life by ourselves. We always arrive on the shoulders of someone, which means somebody helped you in your life. When you were young, you didn't change your own nappies. When you were young, you didn't feed yourself. So why are you so rude to your parents now? Why are you so forgetful to your parents? Why are you so impatient uh, with your aged parents? Why? Because you now think you are a first mover. You arrived by yourselves. You didn't need any shoulders to stand on. And sometimes in work, in life, even in ministry, we think we arrive because we, we did it. 
by our own intellect, by our own prowess at work. Be very careful, my friends. We always arrive on the shoulders of others. So I never forget those God has put into my life. Right? And so we have an elder in Princep Street. His name is Elder Lawrence Cha. And Elder Lawrence Cha has, has said, I booked Chris for, for what? I booked Chris for, for my funeral. And he asked me, and when he asked me that, I said, I call him Prof. Of course I will do it, Prof. Because literally, Mona and me, we owe our life to you and to Elder Koeng Su and all the elders of Princep Street, our founding church, who were, who were the first to embrace us into ministry. And then I'll never forget the John Things and the Philip Jensen's of my life, people that God brought me to help me. And that's why whenever they are in need in some way, we will go out to help them. But sometimes in life, in work, and even in Christian ministry, we forget who God has brought into our life, that we would arrive and have this life and this work and this ministry. Dangerous, my friends. It's all about ourselves. It's all about our self-glory. So do you know Lance Armstrong? <laughs> Lance Armstrong is the number one cyclist of the world. He's won more medals in the Tour de France than anybody else. And for a period of his life, he was literally worshipped in the cycling world. And, that's, and then what did they discover? They discovered that all this time, he has been a master of using drugs and then purging drugs from his body. And that's how he had the extra oxygen, the extra stamina to do it faster and longer and faster and longer. But the frightening thing about Lance Armstrong is that even though he was discovered, those closest to him found that he was not truly repentant at the start. I do not know where he is now. And what happened to him? Somewhere along the line in life, when you have arrived somewhere in the food chain, you think you made it all by yourself. You even forgot the God who made you who gave you breath. It is God who brought you into the world. It's God who protects you. It's God who provides you. It's God who gave you the human networking. You came and you stood on people's shoulders and now you're stepping down on them. Woe to you. God did not put you in Sardis and God did not put you in Laodicea for you to be proud. Let's apply this to ourselves. God did not put us here in Singapore for us to be proud. He did not put us as, a, as churches, 700, 800 churches in Singapore, to be proud. He put us here to be salt and light to the world. It's very important. And sometimes when we are so blind, so blind, it, it, it's tragic. So do you read about the CEO, the chief executive officer? This was two weeks ago, in th I think, in our papers, where he lost his physical sight and the headline, lost his sight but gained his vision of life. We hear that a lot of people who lose their physical sight. I lost my sight, but I gained a vision of who I was. When, when, when I was physically sighted, I was distracted left, right, centre, and I lost my soul. And Jesus says, what good is it for a man to gain the world but lose his soul? Is that you? Maybe that was you until this massive disruption called this pandemic. 
And God is giving you a very important chance and giving you a very important chance globally, nationally, to press the pause button and the reset button to search your life. Have you forgotten you were not created to be independent of God? You're not a self-made man and woman. Please repent of that. Please repent of that. So Jesus confronts and notice the language. I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You know, this verse has been used a lot of times for evangelism, right? But the true context for evangelism, we use it this way that Jesus is knocking on the door of one who still does not believe in Him, right? The non-believer yet. And we, we say to people, He's knocking on the door, please believe Him. But now that you understand the context, it's not a verse spoken to the non-believer. It's a verse, Jesus, it's a word Jesus speaks to the believer. And so Jesus knocking at the door is that we should anticipate Him as the master of our family. And when the master comes back, we should be so eager, rushing to the door to wait for him to come back. Just can't wait for the master to enter the house. But Jesus had been so shut out from the lives of the Christians in Laodicea, far from him being the master, the unseen master of this. Really, he's unseen. And because unseen, he's forgotten. He's become a stranger to them. Their life was so full of self-sufficiency and so empty of Jesus' dependency. Total dependence upon Him to save them from Satan, to save them from sin, to save them from themselves. You know what? Every area of their life, breakfast, don't think about Him. Lunch, don't think about Him. Dinner, don't think about Him. Go to school, don't think about Him. Go to work, don't think about Him. Go to holiday, totally forget Him. Jesus is missing from every area of their life. They do their business, right? They, do, they are the medical centre. They, they have all these things. Uh, Jesus, but they're not missing Him at all. There could be nothing more frightening than you and me living with our Bible shut and shutting Jesus and thinking that we are on top of the world that there's nothing more frightening and terrifying than you live with no recognition of God and you think you are the God of your life. Every time God sends a crisis like this, it's for us to press the reset button. You are not independent. You are not autonomous. You are not the first mover and the last and be all of things. God is going to make you accountable to Him. So let me just say something in terms of parenting as a side point. The greatest goal of Christian parenting as opposed to cultural parenting, parenting according, parenting according to the world is you do whatever you can to raise your children to be independent. It's, it's okay if you're raising them to financial independence, but Christian parenting is we are raising them to be totally dependent upon God our Creator, Jesus, our Saviour. Please do not send the wrong message to our children. I'm raising you to be independent. Yes, to be mature, 
but not independent of God and not independent. We are totally interdependent. And hasn't the shutdown and the lock-ins and the circuit breakers driven this home to us? We need each other. We truly need each other. We've forgotten to say thanks to each other. And now for the first time you're thanking nurses, for the first time you're thanking cleaners, for the first time you're thanking people who cut the grass, for the first time you're thanking people who deliver food to you and me. All the people in life you thought you never needed, but we need each other. We do. God didn't create us to be autonomous. It's a horrendous, tragic, spiritual, social, relational position to be in. But please take note, as much as there was that disciplinary word from Jesus to us, you're offensive to me, you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out. Yet as he draws them in, the purpose of this discipline, the purpose of this temporary discipline is his tenderness flowing from his love. And so his offer is, come, eat, sit with me. And the offer for a meal, I do not know, but here in Singapore, we are dying for phase two as we reopen. And phase two, we may be able to eat at hawker centres and restaurants, no more than five, but thank God we can go. Don't we miss eating out? And everybody says, yes, because we are dying of instant noodles at home. We miss this, friends. When anybody comes, invites you to come and have a meal, it means it's a beautiful relationship. It's a restored relationship. You don't often sit to eat meals with your enemies. And he says, come, Jesus says, come and sit with me. So a great tragedy after this disruption is that you know, in the early days when this broke out, when it hit firstly uh, China, and we laugh at the Chinese rushing after noodles and toilet paper, and masks and toilet papers, the must-have, right, toilet rolls. Then we also rushed out and, and emptied our supermarket shelves for a few weeks of noodles and masks and toilet rolls. And then Australia also, and then Canada also. So the must-have toilet rolls. It's, it's so sad that through this disruption, you're going to come out of it and have no greater need of Jesus. Right? And so I love my walks, I love my exercise, but because of this circuit breaker, uh, all the car parks to our parks and our beaches have been closed. And understandably so, because it can be spread by, this COVID can be spread by water droplets, and even when we exercise, the, the stream of droplets could get to us. And so it's understandable for those cautions. But boy, do I miss my walks. Do I miss my runs. And you know, I, as I went out there, I said, I think I should get a bicycle. You know what some of my pastoral staff told me? Even if you want to get, you can't get. Because the new toilet roll are bicycles. The new desperate need are bicycles. I want to ask you, as we come out of this, will there be a new desperate need for Jesus in your life? And if you come out of this with no greater worship of Jesus from morning to night, no greater commitment to Him, no greater dependence upon Him, and say, help me with my children, help me with my work, 
Please protect me. Please grant me your peace. Please set me free from Satan. Please set me free from pornography. If there's no greater dependence upon him, we are going to come back to a very bad normal. Please take note of this. Jot it down somewhere, journal, that God programmed and ordained this crisis so that I would have an eternal need to worship Jesus as the Lord of history. So God disrupting our pride. God did not put you in Laodicea to be proud. He did not put you in Singapore to be proud. He did not put you in Washington to be proud. He did not put you in Beijing to be proud. He did not put you anywhere to be proud. So we got to reject self-glory and embrace humility before God more and more and dependence upon Him and be caught up not with our face and our name and our reputation, but be caught up with God's name and God's glory and God's kingdom more and more. That must be the lesson, the spiritual lesson from this disruption. Not why are you absent from us? Why have we shut you out and left you out at the door? That though you're the master, you have to stand at the door and knock. My life is missing Jesus and I don't even miss him. That's a great sadness, don't you think? It is. Not just a sadness, but a tragedy if it goes on for all eternity. Once we get that, friends, immediately Jesus gives John a vision. He moves, the camera moves. We said that this book is a prophecy. And at times the prophecy, it's like a, firstly, it is a microscope, examines us. Before it's a telescope, it predicts the future. So it's firstly a diagnostic. This is who you are, the Church of Jesus Christ. Before I send you out into the world and look at the, the, the events that are going to come into the world. But now he takes us straight up to heaven to say, unless the church on earth sees a vision of what is behind the curtains, the church on earth, you and me, will lose it when we suffer. We will lose it when we don't have the God and the answer behind our suffering and the judgments. After this I looked, and behold a door standing open in the heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, Come up here, I will show you what must soon take place. At once I was in the Spirit. What does that mean? Which means this is the Holy Spirit thing that God gave to John to see this. And behold, what does he see? A throne. So heaven, the centre of heaven is a throne. And one seated on the throne. Notice, John cannot describe the one seated on the throne. He can only describe what surrounds the throne because God is too spectacular for us to describe in human words. There are no human words to describe this. Have you ever experienced a situation? You know, here in Singapore, there is a fruit. We call it the king of fruits. It's called durian. It's now almost durian season. So whenever we go for our church camp in June, in Malaysia, in Singapore, all around Southeast Asia, this king of fruits. For those who love this durian, when they eat it, the delight on their faces, and when we ask them to eat, uh, to describe this, they have no words. They're just drowning in this. Whenever we enjoy a pleasure, something good, something special, something wondrous. We are lost for words. 
God is the most wondrous being, the most wondrous person in the entire universe. He who created, there are no words to describe the one on the throne. But there are now the human words to attempt to describe the throne and what surrounds the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. All those of us who know the Bible slightly better would know that rainbow, rainbow, the origins of the rainbow, the significance of the rainbow goes all the way back to Noah. And God promising Noah that as he judged the world with a flood, the only family that will be spared is Noah and his family. Then after the flood, God promised never to wipe out the human race by a flood again and that rainbow. And so could it be, the scholars have different views, but this could be a really credible one, that the rainbow here, what surrounds the throne of God are His promises to us. That beginning from chapter 6 onwards, when the seven seals and the seven scrolls and the seven trumpets all unleashing God's judgment upon the world, as He saves His church, He judges the world, He saves His people, you're not going to understand the judgment that might bring so much suffering and so much death unless you understand that God is doing this according to His covenant promises. He will not wipe out the whole world. He will save His church. And maybe that rainbow is a reminder that you do not have to worry. This God knows what He's doing even as He brings about this virus, even as He brings about this pandemic and nothing catches God by surprise. He knows what He is doing because he's surrounded by his promises never to abandon his beloved people. Why heaven, we said? Because unless life on earth is connected to heaven, we lose our meaning. And so the way to read this as a prophecy is firstly a microscope of who we are. God audits our life. He x-rays our life. And then it's a telescope of the future. It shows you what the future is. And so... Did you listen to the beautiful, watch that video? Were you struck by it? That Huilin said that she cannot imagine a baby without a home. A baby doesn't belong to an institution. A baby doesn't belong to a hospital. A baby needs a family, a papa and a mama. And they have become firstly the foster parents and then the parents who adopted Kayla. When we see suffering without end, and from chapter 6 onwards to chapter 22, they're going to see suffering without end as God over history is going to bring judgment after judgment to warn the world, come to Christ, come to Christ. If you don't see heaven, you'll be disconnected. It'll be meaningless if God is not on the throne. It's meaningless if God didn't make a promise, made a covenant with His people that he's not simply going to judge and destroy the world, but he's going to save his own. Around the throne were 24, 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals and thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of, of God. And before the throne there was as it were, a sea of glass. Most important thing to explain, 24 elders in all likelihood, 12 representing the 12 tribes of Israel, 
the people of God in the Old Testament, God's first chosen people. But His first instalment, His first deposit of Israel was for the new Israel, us, Gentiles, Chinese, Malays, Indians, Americans, Africans, Caucasians, to come in black, white, yellow, every tribe, every clan, as it was say in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. We come in to the finished work of Jesus. And so, 12 tribes and the 12 apostles representing the universal church, the eternal church of God, all brought together because God made a promise. And God made the promise to Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, too many to count. And that is it, even as he brings judgment upon the world. And around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. Can you imagine this? Just pause for a moment. Creatures, eyes in front, eyes behind. The first living creature was like a lion. Second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. The fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had wings. And we've seen this before in the whole Bible. They are cherubim and seraphim who are around the throne of God. And this was spoken about by Isaiah in chapter 6 when he saw a vision of God in Ezekiel chapter 1. They never cease to say, whatever you do not know of what we'll be doing in heaven, we'll be offering God ceaseless, endless praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And this you first met where? In chapter 1. And this who was, who is, who is to come, is now handed to Jesus after his finished work. God, who is sovereign, has handed all authority and sovereignty to Jesus. And we're going to meet in chapter 5 that it is the Lamb that is worthy to be worshipped and worthy to open that scroll. So what is it about these four living creatures? Different ideas, but could be the lion is representative of all the animal kingdom. The ox is representative of all domestic animals. And men, yes, mankind. And the eagle of all that fly and tells you that all in creation and all in heaven, the very reason for God creating us is to glorify God, not to glorify ourselves. So God deserves to worship. And the only way we can come to worship God is through Jesus. And so the only way to come to know Jesus is evangelism. You and me going as salt and light into the world and telling people as the world lives in panic, as the, loves, as the world lives in panic with COVID-19, with a pandemic, that we believe that Jesus is sovereign. And when He's sovereign, what does that mean? Sovereign means there are no wasted experiences in life. Sometimes our experiences are really painful. They really are. And so, very sadly, in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Anglican Church, there have been a series of complaints of abuse, of sexual abuse. And I read this of the Anglican Church, and this minister was put in charge of a commission to investigate the allegations of abuse. And as he went to investigate them, he found that a significant number of these complaints 
of abuse by Anglican priests was actually, they were true. But to protect the church from being sued, right, they would hire the best lawyers to defend themselves. And as he realised, as he thought it was to be on the site, not of the institutional church, but to listen if there was real wrongdoing, real wrongdoing, that the church would do something about it. But he was so disheartened by this that he gave up. He gave up. And what are some lessons for us? Sometimes, even in life, even in pain, even in suffering, even in ministry, right now, we've got a problem. We've got a virus. We've got infectivity as never before. We've got the potential of death. And we are all problem-centred. We are all crisis-centred. We're all vaccine-focused. And we are trying to look for the answer, trying to look for the answer to this problem. And sometimes we get so close to the problem, we, we even question God because we want to be the Messiah to our problems. Like this pastor who really wanted to solve this problem and said, we must help, we must help. And he couldn't see that Jesus was Lord even of this, that he could bring good out of this. And that's very important that we do, do not become so problem-centred that we take on the Messiah complex and miss the Messiah himself. Every time crisis, trial and tribulation, judgment, plague and pestilence comes upon the world, we could be so problem-focused, crisis-focused, we are looking for the answer. We miss Jesus as the Saviour. Like I said, it would be a great tragedy if we came out of this and we were no closer to Jesus in our lives. And so the repeated lesson of Jesus to all the seven churches, I know, I know, I know. He knows so much about Ephesus. He knows so much about Sardis that it was like Pergamon, the two cities built on a fortress and they were unconquerable and that made them proud. He knows so much about Laodicea, that they are so proud in their prosperity. He knows so much about their geography, about their history. He knows so much. What should that do to us? It should comfort us that Jesus is with us in our faithfulness. Jesus is with us in our weakness as I'm struggling. That Jesus is with us in our repentance. We are never unloved. We are never unnoticed. And if we hold fast to Him, we will never be unrewarded. We will be invited to sit at the banquet with Him. We will be invited to rule with Jesus. We will be invited to the tree of life. We will be invited to the new heavens and the new earth. Please do not just look at life horizontally, humanly, and come to your own conclusions that God is, that Jesus is absent and he doesn't know the pain we are going through. If he knew of this pain, he would come and intervene sooner rather than later. Not so. Jesus knows. So I shared with you that uh, the last two weeks I went through, it was definitely a spiritual attack. And on some days I felt that, at a very low point, I felt that this was it. I felt so gutted, so gutted spiritually, so gutted emotionally, mentally, so drained. Perhaps shouldn't carry on. I got on my knees and I read. And I, I, firstly, as I was listening, I listened to a song that came on my playlist. All of a sudden, 
It was Psalm 91. We know Psalm 91 is not a spiritual talisman. But towards the end of it, it's just the assurance that God loves us, that God loves us. Then I read Proverbs 10, and it says, search for God's wisdom with all your heart. If you search for God's wisdom with all your heart, you will find it. He will find you. He will reward you. So I said to God on my knees, I really need encouragement today. Please encourage me. And just went on and just went on. And about midnight, I got a message on my phone. The message was from a brother in Christ here in ERPC. He said, you know, I bumped into someone and someone asked uh, whether he went to church. He said, I go to ERPC. And she said, ERPC? Pastor Chris? I said, you know Pastor Chris? Yeah. In 1994, my life was in crisis. I walked into a service. He was preaching at that church, not here. He was a guest speaker. And what he said, I gave my life to Christ. My life was in a shambles. And even after believing Christ, it was a shambles. I got divorced. I was declared a bankrupt. And there was no hope for me to rebuild my life. But I gave my life to Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the Lord of my... No wasted experiences. And even this, this lady, her father says, give up. I mean, there is no such thing of a second beginning here. But step by step by step, Jesus rebuilt her life from the pain of a broken marriage to the pain of a bankruptcy. And that message was sent to me the last hour of that day when I said to God, please assure me, if you could encourage me that I should carry on. Boy, did I, was I encouraged. And I sent that brother in Christ, you are God's, God's gift to me. I don't know who this woman was, but now I hear. We are never alone. We are never unnoticed. And we are never unrewarded. Jesus is not the absent Lord. And so we exist for the endless worship of God. And Revelation 4 shows you that. All beings in heaven and on earth. And I want to ask in ending our time, is Jesus the Lord of your story? You think He's worthy? He is worthy. Let's turn to God in prayer. May we heed your word. May we heed your word in all the seven letters to the seven churches. May you heed your word, especially now, in listening to your, your word to the church in Laodicea. That we are not autonomous. That we didn't arrive by ourselves. That you didn't create us to be proud, to be independent of you. Or cure us of our spiritual pride and cure us of our spiritual blindness. It will be tragic, Heavenly Father, that we go through a crisis like this as countries of the world, as churches in these countries, and see no greater need for the Lord Jesus. You and you alone, Heavenly Father, are worthy of glory and honour and power. And your Son, the Lamb that was slain, is worthy of glory and honour and power forever and ever. And so we pray for your Spirit to work in us, to bring us from pride to humility, to acknowledge you for who you are. Jesus, as the curtain is drawn back, may we acknowledge now and forevermore that you are the Lord of history. And because you're the Lord of history, you should be the Lord of our story. So no matter what the tears, no matter what the pain, no matter what the fears, no matter what the uncertainty, help us to realise there are no wasted experiences. Because you are the sovereign Lord, 
You know all that has happened. May we not turn and keep looking for answers everywhere else, but look to you and you only. And in looking to you, know that you are the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler of the kings. You love us, you free us, and you made us to be a people of your kingdom. And with that, may our lives be different unto your glory. In a time like this, we are so tempted to turn inwards as we cannot think beyond ourselves. We worry for our own education, we worry for our own jobs, we worry for our own future. But in the testimony that we just heard, all the testimonies that we just heard, especially today from Kelvin and Philin, that we can look to you and in looking to you, there will always be space in our hearts, in our new regenerate hearts, to reach out and love others whether they're the migrant workers in our midst or whether they are the children who may be abandoned. There are needs all around us. So may you raise us to be salt and light because you are the Lord of our story. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.